Connie is going to do our reading. As Connie comes, and I am going to make you go to the pulpit, we're elevating a woman this morning, okay? In fact, Connie, will you just do the whole thing? Will you, just, you can just read my notes. No. Connie is, is uh, going to read scripture for us. It's a long passage, 19 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. As she reads, as you're able, would you please stand in reverence for God's word? Oh my. It's a long one, so you're going to be standing for a while. And then you want me to pray too, right? Sure. Okay. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection... And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did, he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also have, who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father God, Oh, I have no words, but I'll gladly use yours. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And with King David, I'm going to say, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Father, we're so glad to be here in your presence. And I pray that you will speak to us through your word, through John. Your word is living and active, as the Bible says. So I pray that you'll make these words live to us. And in your holy name we pray, amen. 
Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. Thanks, Connie. In 156 AD, there was a man named Polycarp. And at the time, Polycarp was one of the only living people who knew one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. Polycarp was, was discipled, was mentored by John the Apostle, who was the only one of the remaining disciples who wasn't martyred. And John died and lived a long life. Uh, Polycarp was, was a great man, and he became a leader of the church in modern-day Turkey in the city of Smyrna. He was a bishop. And it was a time in the Roman Empire when Rome was systematically hunting Christians. And the, the goal was that the Christians were so offensive to them because they pledged a loath, an oath of allegiance to another lord, one called Jesus. Caesar uh, wanted exclusive allegiance, but the Christians paid their allegiance to the king called Jesus, who was one of the Jews, as they said. And so when the authorities decided to go after Polycarp, they were really excited because here's a leader of the church, here's a man who had a link to the 12 and a link to Jesus, and they were going to take him out, and the hope would be it would have a wider concentric effect as they, they took out a great leader of the church. And so Polycarp had been warned in a dream, and he also knew because he could read the times that he was on their list. And days before they came to arrest him, he had a dream, and in his dream, he was sleeping on the pillow, and the pillow caught fire. And Jesus said to him in that vision, you're going to be burned at the stake for me. And so when the day came that, that the authorities came in modern-day Turkey to arrest Polycarp, he was prepared. And he came down, and as the soldiers came into his house, he ordered his servants and his helpers, get these men some food and drink. Could I have a little time to pray? And so he showed hospitality to these men who were about to turn him over to be killed. And for two hours on his face, he prayed that he would have the grace to endure as a martyr. Uh, Polycarp was taken to the arena where people the, were thrilled to see that he had come. As he entered the arena, the people cheered because they knew, finally, we're going to take out one of the atheists. The Romans thought Christians were atheists because they didn't worship any of the idols of Rome. And Polycarp, as he entered the arena, was approached by the proconsul who said, uh, turn away from Christ and I'll let you live. And Polycarp said, for 86 years I've served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And the proconsul said to him, I have wild animals here and I'll sick them on you. And he said, call them. He said, because I'm not going to repent. I'm not used to repenting from good toward what's evil. And the proconsul thought, well, I'm going to up the stakes. He says, I could burn you alive. And in response, Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour, but you know nothing of the fire of judgment that's coming, so bring it on. The, the men began to assemble the pyre on which they were going to light the fire and they were going to, to restrain him so that he couldn't get out of it. And they grabbed a hammer and nails because they were going to nail him like Jesus onto the wood before they lit him on fire. And Polycarp said to him, you don't need to do that. It's unnecessary. God will give me the strength to endure the flames. I'm not going anywhere. And he puts his hand behind his back and he willingly places himself on the wood and they light the fire. And, the, and he prayed, and, and there were eyewitnesses. You could Google the martyrdom of Polycarp and hear eyewitness accounts of what happened at his death. And he prayed. He prayed this in the middle of the arena where people were delighting in his death. 
He said, Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of the soul and the body through the immortality of the Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice. And when his flesh began to burn, his hair began to burn, there was an an unlikely odor. People said it was the scent of frankincense. That as his body burned, it was received as a fragrant offering before the Lord. And the people were stunned and speechless and amazed at the way in which this man so gloriously died. I could tell you the story of Felicity and Perpetua, who were North Africans, a master and a slave, two women, you need to Google their story, who died gloriously as martyrs for Jesus. I could tell you the story of Justin Martyr. I could tell you the story of men and women throughout the ages and even in our world today who continue to die to give their lives willingly as witnesses, as martyrs. These people did these things not because they believed that Jesus was a compelling teacher alone. People did these things not because they thought, like, this, it makes me feel good when I go to church. The people did these things, they were willing to face death because they actually believed that Jesus Christ was the resurrected Son of God and the King of the earth, the one to whom all allegiances do. These people were willing to endure the sword and flame and wild animals because they believed that death was a conquered enemy and death would not be the end of their story. It was the resurrection and the hope of resurrection that gave them the courage the courage. To endure. But sadly, we don't have the same clarity of conviction. 2,000 years have passed. We live in a pluralistic society, and there are a lot of questions about what, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, what is Christian hope? How does this whole story end? Where is it going to wrap up? And we have some confusion about what we can believe, even in the church. What is our hope? What's the hope of those who have passed, and what's the end of our story. And there are lots of different options. One of those options uh, you could just call agnostic positivity. So agnostic is like, I don't know and I don't think I can know what's going to happen, but I think it's going to turn up okay. And in a world where we've got TBN and there are people who have all kinds of opinions, you know, pastors who have like detailed charts and spreadsheets about how the end of all things is going to come about, you're like, okay, it's probably not that. Okay, I, the Bible's got, is, you know, lake of fire. We've got dragons everywhere. I mean, this is really confusing. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know that I can know how it's going to end, but I think it'll be okay. That's one of the options for thinking Christian hope. It's kind of this agnostic positivity. Another option is what we could call syncretistic ambiguity. Syncretism is a missionary goes into this, uh, this unreached people group and they share the gospel. And the people think, great, we can add Jesus to our pantheon of deities. And they blend the gospel with their, with their tribal religion. And so many of us in the church, you've grown up singing songs, I'll fly away on glory. You know, you've got this kind of heaven idea, but then you blend it with like popular culture, the sense of like, uh, like becoming one with the universe or we want to scatter our ashes in a particular place because we loved being there. And it's just kind of this ambiguous blend of numerous faith traditions or non-faith traditions and thinking about hope and death. I think the majority of people could fall into this category of heavenly happiness. Uh, 
that uh, the good news is there's a lot of suffering in this life. And that person that we love, that brother, sister, mother, father, who passed away, who maybe they were sick at the end, they're now in peace. They're in the presence of Christ. Paul talked about those who sleep in Christ. And that is such good news that there's something to look forward to. But in the passage that we've just read, and I'm going to argue, you're going to see the New Testament differently. The overall message of Scripture is not that heaven is the end. In fact, one of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, who wrote a book called Surprised by Hope that I highly recommend to all of you, N.T. Wright said, heaven is a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. And the fact that heaven is not the end of the world and not the end of our story is fantastic news. And I want to tell you why. Here's why heaven not being the end is such great news. So imagine that, you know, think about God's story, creation. God, so if you were at the story, the course we started teaching last Sunday night, Emily taught about how gloriously God created. He loved the world that he made. He did such a good job. Now imagine that over the course of human history, the end is that we trash the planet that God made, the universe that God made, and then we fly off because it was so messy he couldn't redeem it. That's a really lame ending to a story. If heaven is the end, one, death wins. So someday I'm going to die. It could be cancer. It could be a truck hits me. It could be I die of old age, and God willing, that'll be the case. Someday I'm going to die. If that were the end of the story and I fly away as a disembodied spirit playing the harp and, like, hanging out with other people at the pearly gates forever, death beat my body. There's no victory there. If heaven's the end, death wins. Here's the second thing. If heaven is the end, then all of creation loses. God did such a good job, but evidently our power to destroy is, better, is stronger than his power to redeem. If a disembodied, flying away from the planet uh, future is all we've got, creation loses. And it's kind of like God lived in the neighborhood, and uh, we did such a bad job. We littered, we destroyed all the houses, and God's like, well, I'm done. I'm moving to a different neighborhood altogether. It's not a story of redemption. There's still loss hanging in the air. The opposite of that is the good news of the gospel, that Christian hope is anchored in resurrection of dead things becoming alive again because of the work of the Creator. Resurrection doesn't mean that death wins. Resurrection means that death dies. Resurrection doesn't mean that creation loses. Resurrection means creation renewed Resurrection doesn't mean that God gives up and moves out of the neighborhood. Resurrection and the renewal of all things means that God moves back into the neighborhood to heal what's been broken. It's the news of resurrection. Heaven is a big deal. It's part of our story. I have family members who are asleep in Christ in his presence today, but it's not the end of the world. The end of the story is heaven coming here, the recreation of the earth, and the resurrection of our bodies. Now, I would guess that the majority of us don't really have a strong resurrection theology. That we're in process. And you may actually be like kind of ticked off at me right now. You're like, like, I have built all of my life. My hope is anchored in heaven. Who the heck do you think you are? But I'm not saying anything new. What I'm preaching, what, this is in the Bible. This is the Apostles' Creed. This is the Nicene Creed. This is that which has been believed everywhere by all people all around the world through time. This is the Christian Orthodox teaching. And I mentioned the creeds. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, we have one of the very earliest creeds. 
Paul said, what I received, I passed on of first importance to you. And he recites these nine lines of a creed. Um, a, a creed is a powerful thing. It's a summary of belief. What's uniquely powerful about this creed is that people who love Jesus and believe in God and even atheist theologians think this creed could have existed as early as 30 to 35 AD. Within years of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, people were reciting this as like, this is the truth. This is the story. And Connie read it. So I want to go through um, these nine lines of the creed. Okay, how many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Maybe you've said them. Okay. Uh, Apostles' Creed, a little bit shorter. Nicene Creed, really long. Full, chock full. You need to study these of, of doctrinal beliefs, dogmas of the church. This one is different. You've got really three statements of belief and then six statements that are a little bit unexpected. I want to walk through it. Uh, this, and I'm just, really, I'm quoting Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 15. This was an early creed of the church. Number one, Jesus died, and he did this in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay? So two important statements here. He really, truly died, and he did this to fulfill the Old Testament. Okay? So the first two-thirds of your Bible, his death was in fulfillment of that. That's statement number one in this creed. Number two, that he was buried. Hey, didn't we kind of just say that? But it's demonstrating, but seriously, he really died. So in review... He died in fulfillment of the scriptures. Two, seriously, he was buried. Three, he was raised on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures, in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Okay, so let's review our creed. He died in fulfillment of the scriptures. Seriously, he died. He was buried. Third, he was raised again on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. That's the first third of this creed. Well, here are the next six statements. And here's how we know this is true. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 others. He appeared to James. He appeared to the, all the apostles. And then he appeared to Paul. Two-thirds of the first creed was, seriously, it's true. Seriously, it's true. Seriously, it's true. Seriously, it's true. Because we've got eyewitnesses. He was dead. Seriously, he was dead. And then he was alive. And here's the proof. And what's so cool is because it mentions all of this took place in fulfillment of the Scriptures. In other words, because Jesus called his shot, what he was doing uh, validates and verifies not only all of his words and actions, but everything that came before him, the tradition that he was living into. All of the promises of God from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus was fulfilling. And on each of those pages, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, we're whispering his name. All of God's intention for the world were coming true in Jesus. They were proven by the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, and we can trust in the resurrection of Jesus because articles 4 through 9 of this first creed. And then Paul goes on to say, and seriously, I'm just reading the text here. Here's why this matters. For Paul, resurrection's everything. Here's why this matters. If there's no resurrection... One, Jesus is still dead. Two, if, if there's no resurrection, our faith is useless and our preaching is useless. So if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, go find a better hobby. There are more entertaining people than, than me out there. Go learn golf. Go take a nap. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, this is all a big waste. He says if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're lying about God. 
If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we have no hope of overcoming sin and darkness and evil in our world. And so think about the vices that you've struggled with since you were a little kid. Think about the institutional, systematic challenges that are facing our society. Some of them are like, you know, even worse than like not funding public education. We're talking about enslaving the masses. They're institutions of evil. If Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead, there's no hope for this stuff. We are of all people most to be pitied. This is what Paul said. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, everyone who we loved, who loved him, wasted their life and they're gone forever. And then last he says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians are like the sorriest lot on planet earth and everyone should feel sad for us. Paul wagers everything on the resurrection. And if the resurrection's true, it validates the entire ministry of Jesus and it validates all of the Old Testament, the tradition that Jesus believed himself to be living into. If it's false, it's a waste. But for Paul, we can believe this stuff matters. This stuff is true because of the witnesses, because there was a mutation, because five to 700 people saw him and they're like, no, for real. We're going to take ourselves out of the pity party and we're going to give our lives chasing this thing to the end of the world, even to the point of death. Because they were witnesses of the resurrection, they believed. There are people in this room who are also witnesses of the resurrection, who've seen transformation that is beyond explanation. This week while I was at uh, the conference there, was, there were two speakers. One of them, a guy named Mike, um, was a neo-Nazi. At 12, he, uh, he had a really bad encounter with an African-American person who was unkind to him, and he said, well, screw that. And he went running the opposite direction. He had a, a great, big, bold swastika right on his sternum. Across his back, his shoulders, it had a white power. His arms, his chest, his belly, his back, he was covered in, in symbols of hate. Uh, and he was all in. There are pictures of him out on the internet before uh, uh, the Nazi flag, pledging, pledging his allegiance, doing the Heil. He was, he was all in, and he served serious time for things that he did uh, with a heart so full of hate. Got out of prison, he repeated his offense, and one day the state of Arizona sent to him a probation officer who was an African-American woman. And what do you think he thought when she knocked on the door and he opened it? She, she walked in and she saw swastikas, she saw uh, KKK stuff, she saw emblems of hate everywhere. Did you know that the Lord Jesus used an African-American probation officer to change the heart of a man who'd been a Nazi for 20 years? And she said, you know, you should take that swastika down. Why don't you put up a happy face? <laughs> God used this friendship to turn his life around. He, he went to a tattoo parlor and he went, underwent some very painful uh, operations to remove the hate from his body. And this man and this woman are, are telling their story now. And for him, it's at great, great cost. He can't go back home. He can't see his kids because he's alienated himself from the people whose heart are still so full of hate. And I got to spend half an hour with him uh, uh, Thursday night just hearing his story. It's resurrection. There are members of our congregation uh, who've, who've you know, confessed and, and just know to be reality, have done some horrible stuff. You know, one person sent me an email and said, I've, I've done 
some things that are unredeemable, but I'm beginning to have hope that God might make me new. I think about, uh, you know, a friend of mine, this is a story of years ago, got married the week after me, and within a year, his marriage fell apart. And, you know, we were all heartbroken because it's our friend. We loved him. And, uh, and God did a resurrection in their marriage. And they're, they're together, and they're married, and they have a child. Man, if, we're not, if we don't believe in resurrection, why would we do this stuff? But you know, this is glorious. This is beautiful. It stirs our heart, the, the message of Easter, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's the gardener of God's new creation. He's continuing to do this work of resurrection in our world. But yet we see much more death than we see new life. And we long to see more resurrection, don't you? Paul said this in, in Philippians uh, chapter 3. Hear the yearning in this. He said, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to see and experience this power of resurrection. Let me tell you, I would rather Cornerstone be forever a church of 20 people who are hungry to know the power of the resurrected Jesus than a church of 200 or 2,000 who need to be entertained. Long for us to be a church of people who hunger to know the power of the resurrected Savior and to join him in the work of resurrection and renewal in the world. A.W. Tozer said, The church that can't worship has to be entertained, and those who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. I'm not that talented or that entertaining. If we're not striving for something greater, if we're not hungering together to experience the power of resurrection and renewal in our worlds, we're just wasting our time, and we need to go find a better hobby. Many of us, as I suspect in this room, have had an experience of some kind with Jesus that changed your life, your own resurrection. Maybe your heart was gripped and you believed that all that stuff that they've said for all those years is actually true, and you placed your faith in Jesus. You're being made new. You believe that he was resurrected, and that gives you hope for the future that you'll be resurrected, that God will come and wipe away every tear and renew all things as Scripture's promised. But here we are in the middle, in between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead, in between the renewal and the new life that he began and the birth of the church and the new creation that is to come when heaven and earth are forever joined and God moves back into the neighborhood. And the church is given, put in the middle of this tension, and God is inviting us to hunger, to see resurrection. I love this passage in in Habakkuk chapter 3 in the Old Testament. I love it because Habakkuk acknowledges all the great things that God has done with great love and respect, and yet also emphasizes this yearning to feel it, to see it, to experience it again. He says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them. Do it again in our day, in our time. Make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We deserve to be destroyed, but God, do what you did again. I would rather us be a church of 20 people who hungers and prays like this than a church of 200 or 2,000 who are just playing games. Don't you hunger for that? What a waste of time to keep doing this and dressing up. 
There's good stuff on TV and good food to eat. One of the things that God laid on my heart this week is I heard two different heard two different people tell the story of, of um, Jesus sending out the disciples to cast out demons. There's this one guy who's filled with a demon, and the disciples couldn't take him out, couldn't take out the demon. He said, Jesus said, this is a special kind. This can only come out by prayer. The, the challenges that we're facing as, a, as individuals, in our marriages, and in our families, and in our institutions, in our cities, and our state, and our country, our world, are far too great for our own power. Um, this is a special kind that needs prayer. My goal for this year, I have no clue how to do this, is for us to sow the seeds and develop a culture of prayer as a church. We're going to do some programs that I hope are helpful in connecting people, that I hope are helpful in develop, like learning the scriptures. But there's no amount of education that can replace that hunger. And my prayer is that we would be a, a, a group of people who hunger to know the power of Christ and his resurrection and hunger to see in our day what God has done in the past. And if that's your heart, let's do this together. If that's your heart, let's pray together, band together, plead with God to do a work that none of us on our own can conjure up. If that's your heart, let's do it together. Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them in our day, in our time, in our lives, in our city, in our world. Make it known. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.